Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Today, I am going to stay behind the pulpit. They tell you in seminary to open with a joke sometimes, so that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get started, let's take a moment, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the beauty and the majesty of your word. And Father, what it is able to do, so profound, so simple, in changing our lives. And I pray, Father, today we have come desiring to be more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so please, Father, bless the time in the Word, illuminate it to our understanding. And Father, I pray that it bring conviction upon us to think of you more biblically. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you notice in your handout that you've gotten, that you've received, you will have um, a paper for today. We're going through a series that we're calling Foundational Framework. And the reason is, is because we all need to be on the same page in our thinking, and that commonality is to be biblical thinking. If you notice, you'll have these little handouts that are in there. I've been passing these out, and these are just little notes that I come up with to help refresh you if you like to keep track of them. It's an excellent thing. But a couple of foundational truths that I want to go by with you. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. In fact, I found this great quote from this book that Chuck recommended that I read, and I want to read it to you. The Bible is the self-revelation of a God who is infinitely more committed to us than we will ever be to him. Man, that's good. That is good. And he reveals himself. Now, here's a question. Why would you reveal something about yourself? Because you want to be what? Known. Because you want people to know you. The second important foundational truth is God is the eternal, sovereign creator, and all that he creates is good. Him being good, everything that he does is good, otherwise he would be a contradiction in his purposes. Now, do you know somebody who is full of contradictions? No no pointing. No nudging. Do you know somebody's full of contradictions? You have a hard time trusting those people. If God had even one contradiction, could you trust him? No, he would tarnish his character. And a God that has tarnished his character and is untrustworthy, you definitely can't trust him when he says that he's provided salvation for you. So this is why we back it all the way up. We're back in the Garden of Eden, actually, where we're going to understand more and more about who God is as we progress forward. So, if you have your Bibles, and everybody should have a Bible now, right? That's a good thing about covering those bases. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Some things we're going to look at. In fact, let's just read verse 26. Just so you know, I am reading from a different translation today. I'm reading from the English Standard version. Now, before you freak out and go, what's this crazy translation he's bringing in? This is derived from the same manuscripts that you get the New American Standard from, okay? In fact, does anybody remember the Revised Standard Version? Anybody remember that? Okay, 
These people bought the rights to that, updated the translation, and that's what this is. Everybody with me? How many people don't care? Okay. Good. It's like, I do not care about that at all. Okay, great. Just letting you know, it's not crazy. So here we go, verse 26. Then God said, now remember, we don't take that lightly, because when his word is in effect, things happen. God said something. What did he say? Here we go. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Everybody see the personal pronouns there. Our, our, us. Everybody see those? Trinity's involved. And so notice what we're going for. They are going to make something. In the Hebrew, it's the word where we get Adam from. Man. We're going to make this creature that is different from the creatures we have previously made. Now, what have we seen so far? Birds, fish, cattle, reptiles. And we always ask the question about God, why did you make mosquitoes, right? I've had five or six of you tell me the mosquito is the national bird of Wisconsin. It's like, thank you. I'm quite familiar now. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I have taught this verse over and over and over and over, tons of times, always referring back to it. And what strikes us or what grabs us often is the idea of image and likeness. What in the world does that mean? You would be surprised how dry all of the reference material that I've ever seen is on these two words. Why? Because they just mean a plain, flat meaning. So notice what I have here for you. Image, it simply means a representation. In fact, when you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you find that the word is used in relation to when somebody wants to get crazy and carve themselves an idol or come up with something else besides God to worship. It's a common word that is used in those ways when it talks about image. The idea of likeness, it means a similar appearance. It's the idea of us, man, being a mirror which reflects that which created it but is not that object. Does that make sense? Now, everybody do me a favor. Put your finger here. If you have one of those helpful little string things, you can put it right here. And turn over with me to chapter 5 of Genesis. I just want to look at a few verses real quick because anytime that you can find in the same book or close to the same vicinity that they are using the same words, it gives clarity to your meaning. It's called the study in concentric circles. We won't get into all that. We'll get into that later when we talk about studying your Bible. But the idea is we know that the same author wrote it. It's only a few chapters away. Using the same words, what in the world does it mean? So everybody look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, that's what we're dealing with, right? He made him in the likeness of God. There's some resemblance that goes on. Male and female, he created them. We're going to deal with that. And he blessed them and named them man, that's the word Adam, when they were created. Now notice this, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Does everybody see how chapter 5 verse 3 can give you an understanding of what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1? Everybody see that? 
How is it that Seth was the image and likeness of Adam? Well, it's in resemblance to, it's the similarity of the same as what God has done in creating you and I. Now, here's the, I mean, this is an obvious answer, but here's the question. Did God take the time to do this with anything else? No. You and I have been specially designed, specially made. There's a lot of thought that has gone into this for a purpose and intent for you and I to live up to and fulfill that has been divinely mandated. Everybody with me? Yes? Who's not? Okay, that's a trick question. All right, moving back to, to, to chapter 1. So notice this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and look what it says, and let them have, what is it? What does it mean to have dominion? What does it mean? I mean, we can take what word do we know from dominion? Dominate, dominance. Some of us go, yeah, right? That's kind of maybe what comes to your mind. What does it mean to have dominion? What's that? Could have control? To rule, to reign, to have some sort of oversight and authority in a situation. Now think about what God's doing here. We, the Trinity, are going to create this being. And this being is going to have great similarity and resemblance to us. Now notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that man is God. I'm not saying that. Remember, we are the creatures. He is the creator. That automatically sets it apart. There's automatically the line there. But notice, they are going to have a special place, a special fulfillment that I want to see, and that is dominion. Does everybody see that God is sharing responsibility? Everybody see that? I mean, who else would rule over creation but God? It's interesting. The answer is man. Well, how can you say that? That's very selfish. No, God told me that's what's supposed to be happening here. God gave it to me as a purpose in which to fulfill. Everybody keep going. To have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, if you would, look at your papers real quick. Man is also significant because of, number one, his enlivening. Now, I couldn't come up with a better word, okay? So just go with me on it. That's the best one I could get. But if you look over in chapter 2, verse 7, how many of you have ever heard the theory that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two separate creation accounts? Nobody's ever heard that theory? Okay, you've heard that theory. One person, good. I don't have to, okay, two people. Three, am I going to have to explain that? Four, okay. the, the fact is, is that they're not. What you find is, is that the creation and what God is doing in the first is kind of like a blurb of here's how it all panned out. And then the focus comes into the special peculiarities of man and what his role is to be in chapter 2. It focuses in on that. If you read it like that, it honestly has no problem. If you check Matthew chapter 19, Jesus both had no, no problem with either one of them. He would quote them verse after verse together, one and two. So anyway, moving on to this. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Then God, what's that word? What do you have? Formed. It means to fashion. It's the idea of a craftsman at work. 
It's, I mean, you know, to put it down in our understanding, it's like little kids with an intent with some Play-Doh. They've got an image in their mind, and they are going to form it out, and it's going to be what they're viewing. Does that make sense? So notice this. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. Everybody see that word ground? It's the word A-D-A-M-A. That's where man gets his name from. Ground and man. Shows you how high up we are on the respect pole, doesn't it there? But notice that. It comes from that same thing. And what is the makeup that we are made out of? Dust. Dirt. That's what we're made up of. Notice he says here, and, not just formed him out of this common ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Stop. Think about this. Imagine. Let me just put yourself there for a second. Imagine like you're hiding behind a tree or something like that, and you're watching what God is doing. And he puts together this form, this human figure. Let's say he's just laying there on the ground. Complete, but not moving. And then God gets in his face and breathes, which if you've had coffee this morning, you don't want that to happen here, right? We were actually talking about how could we strategically put mints out there when people come in just in case coffee had taken place. But think about this. God, does everybody see the intimacy here? Does everybody see how close it is? I mean, this is violating somebody's personal space. God is right up there, and he breathes into this creation, the specially formed, specially made, full of intent and purpose, the very whatever it is that makes us alive. Only, here's a good principle, only God can give life. Only God gives life. So important. You have a special, intricate, thoughtful representation of him on earth that could do nothing apart from having life given to him. Does everybody see how special and significant the representation of the human is, but yet how utterly helpless apart from God's intimacy in his life. Does everybody see that? It's important. It's important. So notice this. Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living what? Being. That word is probably better translated soul. He became a living life. He became a living soul at that moment. So what makes us significant is is that God has actually taken the time to breathe life into us. That's one thing. If you go back to your paper, here's a second thing. The commissioning. Dominion to rule. What is it that human beings were created to rule over? What is it? The earth. Now hold on one second. Isn't the earth God's and the fullness thereof? Well, what is he doing? He's delegating responsibility. 
How many of you are scared to death to delegate responsibility to your kids? Let me ask you this. For those of you that are empty nesters, when they hit 18, were you like, yeah, they're going to be fine? <laughs> My parents weren't. My parents were looking for new locks on the doors and all kinds of strange things. Got any chains around somewhere? Because they're just not ready to tackle life yet. What does God do? The very first thing, I mean, Adam hasn't even earned his stripes yet. He hasn't gone to the school of hard knocks. He doesn't have any previous experience in order to spring from so that he has these great wise wisdom decisions in order to rule the world. Has that happened yet? No. What does he have? Anybody know? In order to be able to rule. He has an intimate relationship with the perfect God. See, that's what makes the difference. Now, you say, oh, that doesn't really impact me. Pause for a second. Everybody go back. When your kid was 18 and heading out the door, if they had an intimate relationship with the perfect God, would you feel good about sending them out? Everybody see that? Somebody just got saved. See, that's good. You would feel real good about that. Notice that's the privileged position that Adam finds himself in. He finds himself in a place of great privilege. So, moving on here. One thing I wanted you to see, so much so that I not only italicized it, slanted it, but I also bold-faced it. Man does not have aseity, eternality, and omnipotence. Now, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here in front of everybody. Because this was a few lessons ago. Who can tell me what aseity means? When we say that God has aseity. Oh, it's quiz time. See, everybody's scared to raise their hands now. What's that? No, he's not eternal. Actually, being eternal is something that's separate. What does it mean that he's eternal? Let's do that. He's always what? He's always been. He's always, always. He was it. Exactly. Aseity means that he is self-existent. He doesn't rely on anybody else in order to exist. He doesn't need anything to be God. He is perfectly self-sufficient. He is eternal in the fact that he's always been and he always will be. He is the uncaused cause of creation. But we also looked at another one, omnipotence. What does it mean to be omnipotent? Be careful. What's it? All wise. That's omniscience. All powerful according to what? I gave you a stipulation for a reason. To righteousness. Who said it? Who said it? Remind me, tell me what your favorite candy bar is. I'll get it for you. That's great. According to righteousness, why? Because when we say God is all-powerful, you always have the smart guy who comes along. Well, could God create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? That guy. It's like, well, number one, that's a double to negative. Where'd you come from? Probably University of Wisconsin. I don't know. But, oh, I need art up here. Exactly. So anyway, but think about it. If he's going to be exercising this amazing power, it's got to be according to a standard. Realize that human beings do not have this. Does Adam rely on God even in a perfect state? Yes, he does. Does God have, or I'm sorry, does Adam have a starting point? Obviously, we just read it, right? He's not eternal. From this point on, his soul will be eternal. At the rapture, his body will be eternal. Everybody see how that works? But he has a starting point in history. Is Adam all-powerful? No, he's not. He has limitations. 
He has certain things that are the threshold of what he is able to do, and there are some things that he just has to probably raise his hands and go, God, I can't do that. Notice how the creature is different from the creator. So here's the question, and this is the question, because like I said, you research these words, it's very dry on what you find. How is man in the image and likeness of Elohim? You might disagree. That's great. My email is in the handout. You can call me or you can talk to me after church. That's fantastic. But I ask you to please give me a fair hearing on this and think about what you know in Scripture, okay? Number one, the mind. Your mind that you have, notice I didn't say brain. The brain is one thing. The mind is something else. The mind that you have, God created. He created the intellect of people. He has created us with a conscience, a capacity for logic, and the ability to reason. Even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ know when certain things are wrong. Doesn't Jesus say, how is it that some of these fathers, if their sons asked for bread, would give them a, a, a snake? Would anybody really do that? No. Or give them a stone? If they asked for fish, would give them a snake? No. Lost people don't even do that. Why? Because they have a conscience. They know. They have logic to be able to comprehend. Number two, feelings. Emotions are a gift from God. They help you be a better communicator. Emotions are never to lead the train. They're never to lead the train. Anybody ever made a decision based on emotion? Was it the right decision? And all God's people said, no, right? It was never the right decision. How much better would it have been if we just called a mental timeout and took a second to regain composure, and then you could decide what you wanted to do? We... What is that called? Regret. I wish I wouldn't have acted emotionally. Emotions are a gift from God to be used properly. But if they're leading the charge, that's when we get in trouble. They are a part of proper communication. And here's the reason why. The capacity to love would be impossible without God making it so. This is what I love about dealing with naturalists. If I can't taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, hear it, it doesn't exist. How do you explain love? Can you always see love? Well, I see it whenever I hug my sweetheart or hold her hand. Isn't that a manifestation of something that's already going on? Yeah, can't, can't measure that, can you? Ha-ha, <laughs> smart guy, right? And then you tell him about Jesus and hopefully lead him to the Lord. Okay, so number three, the will. God allows us to make decisions. Our preferences serve to characterize us, whether good or bad. Mankind is not a robot. And the biggest evidence of the fact that we can make a free choice is the fact of sin. The fact that sin is present when there is an almighty, all good, that's only how he creates God, shows us that there's something going on that is contrary to God in the mix. Does that make sense? Now, I have a friend who's a preacher friend down in Georgia. He always wears a bow tie. Does that tell you something about his personality? I'm pretty sure God didn't choose it, right, for him. He chose it of himself, but it tells me a lot about him. Maybe in your own life, there are some preferences or things that you have. They don't necessarily have to be sinful, but here's what you find is God gives you the freedom to do that. God has the choice in how he creates. You ever wondered why he created us the way he did? We're still wondering about the mosquito question. You ever, I mean, has anybody ever wondered why God created certain things? Anybody? Yeah. You sit here, you're reading the Bible, and you, but you're looking around at you, and you go, God, what in the world is going on? It's almost like there's a disconnect. Sin has gotten in there somewhere and messed up and marred what God created good. 
How about the last one? Body. While God is spirit, now pay close attention because I don't want anybody thinking this is crazy or blasphemous. While God is spirit, the image and likeness spills over into our physical form while our makeup is clearly earth. Didn't we read that in Genesis 2, 7? From the dust of the ground, I will take him. That's how it's going to be formed. But as far as the form of us, and here's the reason why. God knew that his son would one day inhabit flesh, and it had to be properly designed for the purposes the Father intended in supplying salvation for the world. When God created Adam, he had the understanding that the incarnation was going to happen. Therefore, him creating had to be so special that he understood that his very son would encase this. That's pretty profound to think about. So with that in mind of how we're created in the image and likeness, something interesting that we see that takes place, it'll go quick and you'll miss it. So everybody turn your papers over. What is a divine institution? This is one of three divine institutions that we're going to look at over the next three Sundays. What is the divine institution? It is a God-ordained system that was mandated before the fall. The first divine institution that is created is the family. Look over at Genesis 1, look at verse 27. Watch what happens. So God created, he shaped, he fashioned, he formed man in his own image. Okay, now watch. Verse 26, image. Verse 27, image. And watch what it says. In the image of God, there it is third time, he created him, singular form, and then look what happens here. What's it say? Male and female, he created them, plural. Okay, stop, hold it. Pay attention to what the Scripture's telling us. When God created people, he has a heading. And the term man, when we say mankind, that's not because we're being disrespective of womankind or you don't value womankind. I actually like womankind, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea is that mankind is the generic general heading of which male and female are under. Does that make sense? So these are two categories under this main heading. Now, pause for a second because think of the implications. Some of you aren't going to like this. Those of you that don't like this are the kind that got married so that you could demand food from your woman. She would be around for your carnal needs and she would switch the, the TV until the remote came along. Okay? <laughs> If that's you, you have a wrong view of women, okay? If that's you, you have a severely unhappy marriage. If that's you, you're not thinking biblically because this scares some people. This is not a threat to our manhood. Understand this. But what this does tell us is that in a perfect family environment, remember, it's a divine institution, the male and the female are on an equal plane. The male and the female are on an equal plane. Now, I'm not going to ask how many people disagree with that because I don't want you to get in trouble, and we will be here a long time. So, but think about this. Let's look at my notes real quick. And if you disagree, come talk to me. These categories of male and female, though Genesis 2 speaks of the separate formation of man and woman, we see that, right? Man's formed out of the dust of the ground. Rib is taken out of the side. Female is formed. We'll look at that later. It says here, the only inferiority in play is between the creator and his creation. He is over them. Even in a perfect environment, God is still God. Man is still man. But it is not between man and woman. 
Now, each sex is given a role to fulfill. We're not going to deny that. Any of you guys having a hard time getting pregnant? (laughs) Case in point, always draw it back to design. How has God designed? Obviously, he's designed us differently because of fulfillment that we need to have differently. There's nothing wrong with that. It is blessed by God. In fact, what we're going to see in verse 28, he blessed them. He made them like this and then he blessed them. So there's nothing wrong with that. Another another thing that, that this makes mad is the feminist movement. They're all about their rights. Got to be a woman. It's a woman's world kind of thing and all this. Should women get equal pay for the same job? Yeah. Are you doing as good of a job? You're probably doing a better job than a guy is. Maybe you should get paid more. Maybe we'd step up to the plate. Stop being such slackers. A lot of times that's what needs to happen. But notice in these situations like this, the Bible gives an equality but varied roles. You say, well, how in the world does that work in the New Testament when we talk about that the head of Jesus is God and the head of man is Jesus and the head of woman is man? How in the world do you deal with that? Did something happen at the fall? Did sin enter in the fall? Yes, in fact, that's why we call it the fall. We're not talking about the season, right? That's why it happened, because something skewed comes up. Man has this heightened responsibility of leading his wife. And when you deal in the book of Ephesians, you see the word hypostasis used, which means to come under, to voluntarily place yourself under the leading of another person. It means that a woman being on an equal plane with a man having different roles has said, Lord, my husband is to be the leader in my home, and so I am voluntarily submitting myself under his leadership. Notice that doesn't say a push down of the woman role. It brings a heightened responsibility of what a man is to be in the home. Everybody see how that works? We often think, that why is God not like us? How come Paul's so mean? He's not. He's not. He's actually calling your men to be godly men. But men will never be godly men if women are not in the position in order to push them to do so. Interesting how discipleship works like that. So, notice here, go back over to your page. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And what is the blessing? Notice what he says. And and if you look up at verse 22 real quick, after he made uh, birds and fish and all these kind of things. And he blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. 28, and he blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on the earth. In other words, expand, procreate. There's nothing wrong with it. Your dominion is to be far-stretching, and one person can only rule over so much. So expand. It is a blessing. God is giving his yes and amen. I guess this would kind of work in this community, you know, in the background, right? To go and to live out that created mandate. Now let's look what else he says here. Verse 29, and God said, behold. Now real quick, good Bible study thing to remember. Does everybody else have behold in yours? Behold. Anytime you see the word behold, Think of Lucy shaking Charlie Brown to pieces and he's got three eyeballs that are rolling around. Behold, think of that. That helps me a lot. Behold, he wants to get my attention about something. Here's what he says. Behold, 
I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. Notice the animals weren't given it like we were. Very different deal. But notice everything that lives, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. What do we call that? From last week. And it was so. Just as God said, just as he said, it happened. Now, what's this tell you? Everybody's vegetarian. Everybody got real discouraged real quick. Because immediately what comes to my mind, I read this passage is no barbecue, right? And it's rough. So I'm from Kentucky. I love it. So moving on. Look what it says, verse 31. And God saw, now watch this. He is evaluating and assessing. And it's not just man. So many preachers want to, want to get to the point of, notice that after man, it was very good. Pause for a second. Look what the text says. He backs it up. God saw everything that he had made. He's looking at the scope of all of the creation, him speaking it into existence, and the careful formation and handling and manufacturing that he's done of the human body. And he says it is very good. And notice what it says in there in the middle. And behold, shake, shake, shake. It's very good. It's very good. Any problems here? None. It is a perfect environment. And look what he says there. And there was evening and there was morning. The what? Six days. Is it plain what a day is? It is. And it's very good. Now on the back of your sheet that I have for you, I wanted you to see something in particular just in case we get too big-headed about who we are as people. Because that's a tendency. I mean, let's be honest. When, when you boil it down, we're all on our own team, right? What is our relation to God? Here are the temptations. The first temptation is to compare God to something that we already know for the sake of reference and clarity. Have you ever done that? You ever seen a book that was translated into a movie? And one good thing about seeing the book translated into movies, if you watch the movie, you now have an idea of who those characters are. Well, that's Robert Redford. Yeah. And then when you read the book, you can think through what Robert Redford's doing the whole time. Anybody ever do that? Am I the only person? Okay. Praise God. I was like, I am the weirdo in this room. That's probably true anyway. But we always try to take something that we know and make it what we think it ought to be as far as describing God. Anybody ever heard of this book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier? Do you like this book? It will blow your mind. In fact, in the beginning of this book, he apologizes for writing it. Because it was written in the 60s, I believe it was, early 60s. But he said, as I looked across all the books that were coming out at that time, nobody's writing about God the Father. Somebody had to write something about who God is. And it's excellent. It's very good. Here's what he says. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite of all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. 
We take all that, we put it together, we make it out of God. Everybody know that Jesus didn't have blue eyes and Vidal Sassoon washed hairs? Everybody know that? Everybody know Jesus isn't white-skinned? Sometimes that rubs people. If you're the, if you're the Ku Klux Klan guy in a, in a room, it just rubs you the wrong way. But it's true, he's not. And yet, how many times when we think about Jesus, we get that? When he was praying before the Father, it wasn't. That wasn't the look. It said sweat like drops of blood was pouring for his hand, from his head. He was agonizing with the Father. It was a scene that no one wants to paint. But too often when we come up with these images, we run the risk of making them idols. Dangerous. Because I'm going to ask you a question here in just a minute, so hold on to that. Notice that I actually put a, down a, a quote from Tozer from that same page, actually, for the second one. Number two, here's how we mess it up, the temptation. We make our own ideas about him apart from self-revelation. It goes like this. This is what I think God's like. Well, God would do this. Well, God prays for the brewers. I'm sure he does. This is idolatry. And here's the reason what makes it idolatry is because you're saying that it is the God who's the creator of all things, but it is a solid, even if it's a sliver, misrepresentation of him. Anything that misrepresents him in the slightest becomes an idol because it's not who he is. And you say, well, how in the world am I supposed to think about God if I can't formulate who he is? What's the answer, church? From his word. What does his word say about him? It's really interesting in the Ten Commandments. He says, you should make no graven images. Whenever Aaron made the calf, what did he say? This is the calf Jonas from Albuquerque and your worship. Is that what he said? No, he said, this is the God that delivered you from Egypt. This golden calf was the best that Aaron could come up with in order to try to encapsulate God so people could understand him. God says, don't ever do anything like that. If you want to think correctly about me, you think correctly about me from knowing my word. You don't need the images. You need the word. That's what you need. That's what formulates the understanding. So here's the other quote. If we insist upon trying to imagine him, we end with an idol made not with hands but with thoughts, and an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Wrong thinking. And here's the thing. If we think wrong about God, do you think that that will produce wrong actions? Yes, it will. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Praise God, he's getting close to the end. So that's the only bad thing about passing these notes out is you guys know where I'm going. One day I'm going to surprise you. You're going to come in with your hand out and be like, how come there are no notes in here? I don't know what he's going to do. Ha <laughs> ha, surprise. I might do that next week. Isaiah chapter 40. If somebody next to you is having trouble with their Bible, please reach over and help them. Love them. Love them to Isaiah 40. No silly over here. Isaiah 40, let's look at verse 18. And, and let me just tell you this real quick. I find myself, when I, and I do write in my Bible, please don't think less of me. I find myself when I'm reading through and somebody asks a question in Scripture, I'm like, I need to answer that. Okay? So this starts with a question. Verse 18 of chapter 40. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Now, from what we looked at, we might say man, but what do you think the thrust is here that God's trying to prove? Is there anything that compares to God? No. So in your Bible, if you write in it, write nothing. Nothing compares to God. Nothing. And here's what's so amazing. 
He's uncomparable to anything. And ultimately, he is unknowable to our finite minds, and yet he invites us to know and understand him. Everybody see how amazing that is? It's just like when we read in Romans 1 a few weeks ago. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. That which you're not supposed to be looking at, he invites you to look at. That type of stuff. That's our God. Stuff we can't comprehend, stuff we can't know, and he says, please, come. If you can grasp a little bit of it, it'll blow your mind, it'll change your life, it'll make you wholly different. So he says here, verse 19, an idol... A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood or chooses special wood, choice wood, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. A stationary, worthless hunk of wood. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Which tells me I ought to know and hear. Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Pause. From the beginning. Where's that? Genesis 1.1. It has been told from you since the very first line of Scripture. Here's what it says. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? There it is again. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. That's day two. That's the expanse, right? The firmament that he stretches out across there. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth an emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, only God. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. Now, host could either mean angels or host could be the fact of sun, moon, and stars. Didn't he name day? Didn't he name the night? Didn't he name the heavens? Didn't he name the earth? Doesn't he name man? You see what I'm saying? He's referring all this stuff back to what we understand in Genesis. And notice he is trying to clarify in people's minds who are wrapped up in idolatry how to clearly think about him. And what does he refer back to? I am the creator, I am the creator, I am the creator. Over and over and over. Look what he says. He who brings out the host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong, he is strong in power, that's his omnipotence. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God. Stop for just a second. Pay attention to what he says. Don't fall asleep. I know Isaiah is a good fall asleep chapter, okay? But pay attention real quick. Look what he says. He calls them Jacob and Israel. He's trying to get the attention. Those are the people that he's talking to. And look what he says about it. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Do you realize that these people thought they could go unnoticed in their actions, thoughts, and deeds? Hidden from God. Let me ask you this. Are they operating in unbelief of who he is? Everybody see why unbelief is so dangerous. Unbelief is the enemy of God. So notice, they think they can get away with it. They think that if they cover it up and they're doing something back here. Anybody know who I'm pointing at? 
Me either, right? It's usually how it goes. God sees it. It doesn't surprise him. He's not caught off guard. And yet, these people are thinking, I can get away with it. I'll worship this idol. He'll never know. It's in my closet. Under my drawers. I put some old shirts on it. He'll never see. Is this hitting home? Everybody see that? He'll never know. Unbelief. Verse 28. I love it. Have you not known? Obviously not. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His omniscience is incredible. Oftentimes our response to God is, what can I get away with? Well, he's just the overbearing parent with the stick that is going to whack me upside the head when I get out of line. What's amazing is, is God has not unfolded himself like that at all in anything that we've seen. But what does he desire? He desires deeply for his people to think correctly about him. And not just his people, but the whole earth. I mean, think about it. Why is the church commissioned with the gospel? Well, we're commissioned with the gospel because people need to get saved, yes. But how does that happen? Are they currently thinking correctly about God? No. In fact, this entire world is operating in unbelief. And we find that we are the light bearers of a message because everybody's been created in his image and in his likeness and therefore has some close, intimate, personal semblance with God because we've all been given the breath of life and yet we are operating in unbelief. One of the most tragic verses, John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not know him. Insane. Does everybody see how sin and unbelief lead to reality insanity? Because it completely separates you from the one that made you. And you are operating in a way that we often find comfortable and routine, and that's the way we've always done it. And actually, compared to God, it is severely unnatural. Does everybody see that? Why? Because we exclude the supernatural. Let's finish with this. Turn to Psalm 8. You're probably familiar with this. We start getting into it, you'll go, oh yeah, I love that song. Psalm 8, this is David speaking. And here's what I love about the Psalms. They're often the product of David's reflection of his thinking about God. And as he thinks about God, he wants to write songs. He wants to pour it out in some rhyme and meter and reason in order to communicate for other people so that everybody is singing along a correct understanding of who God is. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, everything outside, right? Everything outside that we would be able to see. The moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And here's the question that he asks. What is man that you're mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you care for him. How insignificant does David seem when he looks up at the sun and the moon and the stars? When he tries to compare himself, good grief, that's so out of my realm of understanding, and yet, God, you take the time to be concerned about me? I mean, he didn't just wind us up like those little cheap carnival hoppy toys and let the world go. 
He's intimately involved. He's always there. He's oftentimes walking behind us, waiting for us to turn around and acknowledge him. But I'll tell you this, he follows us everywhere that we go. Look, he says here, verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. Everybody remember we saw that? You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Notice, notice that where is David's thinking rooted? Genesis chapter 1. How do I need to think about God? Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. How he told me he did things. That's how I need to think. Look how he closes it up. A little doxology. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now pause for a second because I want you to see something. This six days completes creation. What has Adam done for God in the six days of creation? Nothing. What has God done for Adam? Everything. In fact, does everybody see how preparatory the first five days were in order for man's arrival? It's almost like God was fixing up the nursery and getting the changing table ready and making sure the stuffed animals were in place and picking out the right paint and getting the whole nursery ready for the introduction of this new something or other that you're not really sure what to think about. Bundle of joy, good stuff, giving responsibility. There I see what a loving father God is. Took the time to prepare it. And get this, the environment is perfect. God has set up everything possible for Adam to be successful in anything that God has asked of him. And here's what's amazing. Anything that God asks of him, God already designed him to fulfill. He is lacking in nothing. It's a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if our thinking about you has been contorted in some way, um, maligned, just Father, if we've assumed upon you in some way, Lord, it's extremely unhealthy. Right now is the time of repentance for our minds to be changed, to be convicted by the truth. And however we were in the wrong thinking about you, that it now be right. So Father, prick our hearts with your word. Ignite the fire of the Holy Spirit within us, Lord, to add it to our understanding. And may we be in awe of the time and consideration that you have taken in creation. Thank you for being our God. Pray to the name of Christ, amen.